The following presentation was produced by the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, everyone, so let's uh, uh, continue with the suttas. Uh, and we have been looking at uh, uh, Satipatthana practice uh, and uh, mindfulness uh, in particular. Uh, and I want to continue on that theme. And uh, uh, we had a look at how uh, mindfulness practice or Satipatthana is like a refuge. Yeah, you be refuge unto yourself, uh, take yourself as an island. Uh, and in particular, using Satipatthana practice to uh, escape, in a set, to some extent, f for the from the dangers of the world, which are always so unreliable and so uncertain. Uh, and uh, it is not just Satipatthana, of course, but really it is the whole spiritual life, uh, which is like a refuge from the world. Uh, because whenever you develop the spiritual side of you, uh, you develop an aspect that is independent of the world outside. Uh, and it is that independence of the world outside which makes the spiritual life uh, worthwhile and makes it actually uh, that sort of refuge. Uh, but uh, I'm going to talk a little bit more later on about how to actually practice Satipatthana. Somebody asked that question yesterday and I want to get back to that later on. Uh, but before we do that, I want to have a little bit more look at the foundations for mindfulness practice. Uh, the four um, mindfulness meditations, the four satipatthanas, uh, what is required, what kind of supports this. Uh, and I already mentioned before that morality is a very important support for mindfulness meditation. And uh, uh, the reason for that, maybe it's worthwhile just dwelling a little bit on the reason for that. It's very obvious in many ways, but uh, the uh, uh, when you live well, when you uh, act with kindness in the world, you tend to feel good about yourself. Uh, and I'll come back to that in a second as well. And when you feel good about yourself, the present moment tends to be easy to, st to, to live in the present moment. Because the present moment is good if you feel good about yourself. If you do bad things and you feel bad about yourself, it is hard to stay in the present moment. So it kind of makes sense. Yeah, You live well, and as a consequence, it is easy to be mindful. But it also has to do with the purity of the mind, so that if you... Uh, if you have anger or you have desires, by the very definition, anger and desires are not to do with the present moment. Anger, desire has to do with the future. And anger very often has to do with things in the past, that we, you know, things we did, things we think about that happened before. So by the very definition, these are things that take you out of the present moment. And that is why it is so important to uh, reduce these things, at least to a, a certain degree, and then that is where meditation starts to work. So this is what the whole point about sila, or morality, being a very important support for meditation practice. And of course in Buddhism, uh, that morality includes the morality of the mind. And that's why I say ill will and desire are also part of this thing we call sila in Buddhism. So it's much broader than what we normally normally mean by morality. And it's important to get that as well, because... Uh, Although, uh, to understand the full scope of morality uh, on the Buddhist path. Uh. But now I want to look at another aspect which supports uh, meditation practice. Uh, and this is uh, the next couple of little suttas that we have uh, uh, in this little, uh, this little thing here. Uh. The first one is from the uh, Satipatthana Sangyutta. This is the 
connected discourses on mindfulness meditation or satipatthana. Uh, you see the SN 47 there, that means Sangyutta Nikaya 47, uh, third sutta number three. Uh, and this particular sutta is called a monk. And it goes as follows. Uh, at one time, the Buddha was staying near Savati in Jeta's grove, Anatta Pindika's monastery. Then a mendicant went up to the Buddha, bowed, sat down to one side, and said to him, Sir, may the Buddha please teach me the Dhamma in brief. When I've heard it, I'll live alone, withdrawn, diligent, keen, and resolute. This is exactly how some foolish people ask me for something. But then, when the teaching has been explained, they think only of following me around. Sir, may the Buddha teach me the Dhamma in brief. May the Holy One teach me the Dhamma in brief. Hopefully, I can understand the meaning of what the Buddha says. Hopefully, I can be an heir of the Buddha's teaching. Yeah. <laughs> the Buddha is being a bit stern. Sometimes you see that in the suttas. He comes across as a bit stern. Yeah, he, he obviously is a bit worried that this monk is not going to take it seriously. So he gives him a little bit of a stern teaching before he actually says anything. And uh, you can see this is also what happens in the present day, the idea of just following the Buddha around rather than actually uh, practicing the teachings. And this is exactly what you see in the present world as well, the present day as well. Sometimes people just want to follow certain monks or certain uh, people around, because maybe some pop stars or whatever. Uh, <laughs> they want to follow them around and kind of become disciples, and they're happy just being disciples uh, and being in their presence and basking in the glow of their kind of their qualities or whatever it is, uh, and they're happy with that. It's such a common thing, yeah, because it's kind of a, an easy practice. You feel good when you're around certain people, uh, and then you don't have to do so much yourself because it comes automatically. But of course, it is not going to be very lasting. So this is the way it's always been, and this is the way it still is in the present day, which is kind of interesting. Anyway, so the Buddha tells him, and then probably makes him ready to take these teachings more seriously. That's probably the point of that little, uh, little telling off there. And then the Buddha says, Well then, mendicant, you should purify the starting point of skillful qualities. What is the starting point of skillful qualities? Well-purified ethics and correct view. When your ethics are well-purified and your view is correct, you should develop the four kinds of mindfulness meditation. And then they are listed Again, just like before. So this gives you the foundation, the basics that are required for meditation to work. And again, you see ethics there, morality, kindness, purity of mind, and both negative and positive, avoiding to do the bad and, and purposefully doing good things. That's the ethics part. But then there's this other thing here which supports meditation practice, which is very interesting. And this is correct view. And the Pali for that is Ujjukaditi. And someone was asking yesterday, what is the difference between Ujjukaditi and Samaditi? And they are essentially the same. Yeah, and... Uh, uh, so uh, this is a support for the mindfulness practice. And why is that the case? And the reason it is the case is precisely the things we have been looking at just before. The idea of where to find a refuge in your life. 
Yeah, the idea that if you think that you're going to find a refuge in the world, that the world is going to provide you with happiness and satisfaction and meaning and all of these kind of things, if that's what you think, then meditation is going to seem silly. It's not going to seem very much point to it. But if you understand the nature of the world as being inherently unsatisfactory, inherently unreliable, always going to let you down, everything in your life is going to let you down ultimately, once you get that, and it takes a while to take it on board because it's quite challenging to see that. Yeah, It goes very much contrary to how most of humanity live their lives. But the more you see that, the more you change your refuge and you find your refuge in the spiritual life. And this is why right outlook uh, gives rise to right values, gives rise to right priorities, and all of these things fall into place as a consequence. So seeing the world in the right way is really fundamental. And of course, many of you already have some idea of right view, otherwise you wouldn't be here. Not much point of coming in a meditation retreat unless you have some idea of this. But the more profound it is, the deeper it goes, the more powerful it becomes in your practice. And it becomes a source, that kind of a source of power that takes you forward and makes meditation happen and all of these other wonderful things on the Buddhist path happen as a consequence. So what exactly is this right view? And this is what this next sutta is about. This is a standard uh, expression of right view in the suttas. Uh, and I want to just dwell on that briefly before we move on to the actual practice of the uh, Anapanasati. So this is a small extract from a much longer sutta. This is from the middle-length sayings of the Buddha. Number 41, MN stands for Majjhimanikaya, or middle-length sayings, 41, 41st Sutta. And this is uh, regarding the name of the Sutta as the people of Sala. And this is the definition of a right view in that particular Sutta. They have right view, an undistorted perspective. In other words, perspective that aligns with reality, with the way things are, rather than being distorted by uh, the, distor the typical distortions of the mind. There is meaning in giving, sacrifice and offerings. There are fruits and results of good and bad deeds. There is an afterlife. There is obligation to mother and father. There are beings reborn spontaneously. And there are ascetics and Brahmins who are well-attained and well-practiced and who describe the afterlife after realizing it with their own insight. This is how there is a threefold right conduct by way of mind. The two other ways are not to be covetousness and not having ill will. And this is the third one, is right view. So right view is an, actually an aspect of morality in Buddhism, which is very kind of interesting here. So, what does this mean? And uh, what this means is that uh, this is actually quite a nice translation. This is Adan Sudato's translation. It's much better than the usual ones you find because it, uh, it's, it's just uh, fleshed out a little bit, which makes the meaning more apparent. Uh, the first part here is there is meaning in giving, sacrifice, and offerings. Uh, yeah, in other words, Generosity matters, that is what this means. Generosity actually is a, a powerful aspect of the spiritual path. 
Uh, and it's not something to be neglected. It is interesting how generosity is always singled out as a specific quality to be developed on the Buddhist path. Virtue, morality is obviously uh, even more fundamental in some ways, but often it starts out with generosity, uh, the willingness to share, the willingness to kind of be open uh, yeah, with what we, uh, with our own possessions, so to speak. And there's very... Uh, and it's very beautiful when you actually get into that and you get this feeling of kind of opening up to the world and you want to share with everyone. It's a very beautiful feeling inside. And you know straight away this is a spiritual quality. It feels spiritual. It feels really wholesome when that happens. And what I would recommend you to do is to Notice when you do an act of generosity, and sometimes it happens almost spontaneously, you just want to give somewhere, you're feeling compassion for somebody, you, you want to be nice, you want to be kind, and then give. It doesn't matter who it is. Yeah, I'm not saying you should give completely indiscriminately, of course. It, it, sometimes the, you get taken for a ride. Perhaps you should be a little bit careful. If it's obvious that someone is a scallywag, then there's no need to give. But... Uh, um, uh, whenever you feel that urge, that is the right time to give. Uh, it is not so much about who you give to uh, as the fact that you feel an urge to give. Uh, this is the most important thing. Uh, yeah, Even if it's just a poor person on the street or whatever it is, uh, that is often, if you feel a sense of kind of compassion, uh, that is always the right time. Uh, and uh, one of the things that you should notice that is really important with this uh, is that if you give in the right way, when you feel compassion, when you have a sense of mindfulness, when the urge kind of comes to you, uh, very often you feel happy in the act of giving. Uh, you feel a sense of joy coming with that. Uh, and I'm sure all of you, or at least most of you here, would have experienced that sometimes. Uh, you do an act of kindness and you just feel joyful because you're doing that. Uh, it is almost a natural reaction to generosity when it's done with a degree of purity and in the right way. Uh, and this is when we... In Buddhism, talk about kamma. This is one of the main aspects of kamma. Uh, the Buddha distinguished between kamma in this very life, uh, kamma that has an effect in your next life, uh, and kamma that has an, has an effect beyond that. Uh, and all three are really linked to each other. Uh, but kamma in this life, uh, you can experience that directly uh, by feeling uh, the joy of living well, by feeling the happiness that arises inside of you as you do an act of generosity. Uh, so notice that, and when you notice that, uh, you start to understand the power of these things, what they are really about, uh, yeah? why it lifts you up, why it has an effect in your life. Uh, and the more you do that, the more generous you are on a regular basis. Uh, it's not about really necessarily giving big things, uh, sometimes it can be that as well, but it's about this regular act of generosity whenever you have an opportunity. And if you... Uh, see how it affects your mind even just occasionally you understand that by regular generosity you are lifting yourself up you're making your mind more light more bright more beautiful you're accumulating all this goodness inside of you as you do that this is what this is the meaning of kama this is how it works yeah this is how it has an immediate effect on how you experience your existence right here right now and if you keep on accumulating all this goodness inside of you and you grows up and grows up, you're making your mind brighter and lighter, then of course, when you eventually you have to pass away, you have to die, you have already lifted your mind up to a new level. And that is why you get reborn in a good location next time around. Why? Because your mind is already at a high level and it continues there when you die. 
There's no magic to karma. It is just a natural process of how the mind is developed in this way. So this is the idea of karma. It's important to have an idea of karma that is, can be understood and try to experience that in your own life. The more you experience in your own life, the more powerful it is going to be to help you to do the right thing because you start to understand how this works. And the next one here, after generosity, is the one about, uh, uh, where is it, fruit and results of good and bad deeds. Yeah, This is a, a very similar kind of thing. It is just now that it's expanded out to include all actions, not just generosity, but all actions that we do. And uh, you can see, again, if you... Uh, you know, if you treat people with kindness, if you say words of kindness, uh, if you do the right thing, even thinking thoughts of kindness, uh, very often you can actually feel, again, the same kind of thing. You feel good about yourself because you're doing this. Uh, sometimes, a lot of the time perhaps, you won't necessarily feel very much. There will be maybe an underlying feeling that you're doing the right thing, but it won't have a big impact on you. Uh, that doesn't mean that it, it is useless. It just means that sometimes you have to kind of stand from afar. Later on, maybe a year down the track, you will think back and you, you will know that you have lived well and all of these things will support that. Yeah. So a lot of the time, they may not experience anything directly, but it still will have an impact in the long run. So you see this, and as you see this, you turn your life around and you, uh, you understand the power of kindness, the power of not doing anything bad. You understand how this affects you directly. And you become a little bit fearful of doing bad things. Because when you do something bad, you know that you're dragging yourself down. One act of badness sometimes, and you feel bad about yourself afterwards. Yeah, are you, do you really want to hurt yourself? That is what you're doing by doing things that are not kind to others. Who are you hurting the most? You're hurting yourself. Do you want to do that? It's crazy to hurt yourself. There is this beautiful sutta where uh, the King Pasenadi comes to the Buddha and he says to the Buddha that uh, anyone who does an act of, that is unkind to others, uh, they are acting as if they are their own enemy. Why? Because they are hurting themselves in the same way as the enemy wants to hurt you. You're hurting yourself by doing an act of unkindness to others. So be a little bit afraid of, un of not being kind. Be a little bit afraid of doing things that are uh, you know, bad in a certain way, are immoral. Why? Because it is dragging you down, making your own life more miserable. And you are, this is what we mean by kama, and then you don't feel so good about yourself. So there are fruits, there are results on good and bad actions. And if you want to practice this spiritual life, put a lot of emphasis on this, because this is the foundation for everything else to work out. There is an afterlife, yeah, the idea of rebirth, um, and uh, uh, there is this world and the other world, and um, uh, this is another very important part of the Buddhist outlook that is sometimes not emphasized. What we have just looked before is kamma, and now we come to the idea of rebirth. Yeah, so kamma and rebirth are always going together. So there is an afterlife. And why does that matter so much? And one of the reasons why it matters so much is that if there only is this life here, 
then of course it makes sense to focus on the things that belong to this world. The things that belong to this world are the happinesses you find in this life, your, you know, your family life, the, your career and all the possessions you have or whatever. Suddenly these things make far more sense if this life is the only one you have. But if you expand out and you think that you, uh, your future life also depends on how you live now, then of course, uh, suddenly it changes the equation about how you should live. It becomes far more important to think of how you live rather than what you get in this life. The how becomes much more important because that how is what you will take with you also into the future. Not only do you take that how, by how I mean living with kindness, and living in the right way, yeah? all of that you will take with you in the future, just as I explained before. And not only do you take it uh, with you into the future, uh, but if you want to develop the spiritual path all the way towards awakening, uh, all the way towards the, the highest happen happiness you can have, uh, again, this matters because you want to lift your mind up. Uh, and the mind that is lifted up, that is bright and light, uh, is the mind that can have insight, uh, where you can actually achieve some deep samadhi and deep meditation. Uh. So everything good in this world is based on uh, that morality. But So even in this life that is true, uh, but if there is no future life, it, uh, it reduces the importance of uh, living well. So the idea of a future life is just uh, actually matters enormously for how we think about the idea of morality. Uh, you start investing in a new way. You take into account the fact that you're going to live on for a long, long time into the future. Uh, and suddenly it makes sense to look at the world in a different way. Uh, yeah, that future also comes into the equation suddenly. Uh, so uh, that perspective actually uh, actually makes a huge difference. Uh, and uh, then we have the last aspects here of uh, uh, right view. Uh, and uh, there, uh, there is obligation to mother and father. Uh, yeah, it's kind of astonishing that that is an aspect of right view because uh, it, you, know, you, you might agree with the fact that there is obligation to mother and father, but the fact that it is included in right view means that it is important, it is significant, otherwise it wouldn't be there. So what it means is that we can do a lot of good or bad karma by how we deal with our parents. That's really what it says. So dealing with your parents in the right way can really make a big difference in your life. So if you're able to deal with your parents with kindness and with care and not kind of fall into the traps of bad habits where maybe you argue and all of these kind of things. So if you can change your relationship with your parents just a little bit, it can make a massive difference in uh, in, as part of the spiritual path as well. Of course, it has a lot of benefits in its own right, uh, but it also adds to the power of the spiritual path. Uh, and uh, there are many ways of doing this. Uh, a lot of these things ha you know, really have to do with how you perceive, how you look at things. Uh, people sometimes think it is difficult to be kind to your parents because of all the baggage and all the history and all the habits that we have with the people that are close to us. And that's true. It is actually often quite hard because of all of that. But, uh, uh, but that is also why it is really worthwhile, because you are changing something deep inside of you, uh, and you're learning to look at things in a, in a new way. Uh. 
So the, the way to think about this is, uh, and this is the way the Buddha talks about it in other suttas, uh, uh, is to remember what your parents have done for you, yeah, and uh, what they ha- actually have gone through in bringing you up and supporting you. Uh, and for those of you who have children, obviously you will understand more about what it is like to be a parent. So then you can kind of sympathize with your own parents a little bit. Uh, when you have your own children, yeah, you understand uh, what is going on. Uh, and uh, it, it is difficult, yeah, it takes a lot of love, it takes a lot of uh, commitment to raise a child and to kind of always support it, and it often obviously is going to be difficult. Uh, so remember that, remember what your parents have done for us. Uh, the Buddha calls the parents, they call it the Pubacharya, Pubacharya means the first teacher, uh, they are our first teachers. Uh, yeah, they have ta- taught us almost all the basic things that we need to survive in this world. Uh, have been taught by our parents. Uh, yeah, how to dress, how to eat, how to go to the toilet, how to do all these kind of things. Uh, our parents have been there and taught us all of these basic things uh, that we need to be able to survive. Uh, uh, and uh, the Buddha calls the parents the Brahma. They are like Brahma. Uh, why? Because they are like Brahma, because they always forgive. Yeah, regardless of how dodgy you are as a child, uh, yeah, the parents are going to forgive you. Uh, even when you go to prison and you do you know, bad things, uh, still your mother is likely to forgive you. Still, uh. So they have this enormous amount of metta and ability to forgive their children. Uh. And uh, these are very beautiful qualities. So remember that. And when you remember that, uh, then you can forgive the foibles and the negative sides. Uh. There's always going to be negative sides because parents are just ordinary people like everyone else. Yeah, they, they have to be. There's always going to be negative sides. But uh, you remember the uh, patience and the endurance and the kindness and the, uh, all the things they have gone through to bring you into life. And just by changing your perception a little bit like that, uh, already it makes it far easier to be kind to parents and to be supportive. So this is a, a way of, of doing that. Sometimes people have had bad relationships with their parents, uh, and of course then it is much more difficult. Uh, uh, but still, you can do a little bit. Yeah, You can move a little bit in that direction. Uh, uh, so always, it's not about what we do, but the direction that we're moving in. That is the most important. Uh. So um, that is just a little bit about obligation to mother and father. Then we have that there are beings who are reborn spontaneously. That is the least important one of the ones you see in here. I'm not entirely sure why it is there. It is in some parallel text. It's not actually found, so I wouldn't be too concerned about that. But the idea seems to be that there is all kinds of existence possible, and that kind of expands the scope for kamma and rebirth. Yeah, I think that is part of the idea there. And then the last one, there are ascetics and Brahmins who are well attained and well practiced and to describe the afterlife after realizing it with their own insight. So here again you have the idea of rebirth for the second time in a very short passage on right view. Rebirth is mentioned twice. Yeah, That shows you how significant this is in the Buddhist teachings. And uh, in this case, it is about having confidence yeah, or faith, if you like, uh, that there are people, ascetics and Brahmins are mentioned here, who have practiced the life in such a way uh, that they have actually realized that there is such a thing as rebirth. Uh, and that is why I was saying yesterday that the greatest evidence for rebirth, as far as I'm concerned, uh, is the fact that the Buddha said so. 
Why? Because the Buddha is someone who I take to be well-attained and well-practiced. Uh, and he says there is a, uh, that afterlife, you have confidence in that. Well, that means that uh, you have a basis for believing that. So this shows you that, uh, uh, that, that the idea of faith and confidence uh, is actually an important part also in Buddhism. You cannot have a, live a life, a spiritual life, without some kind of teaching, some kind of guide. And that guide in Buddhism, of course, is the Buddha himself. And if you haven't got that faith and confidence in the Buddha, well, the, you don't even get started, really, on the Buddhist path. It is that foundation that is required. And specifically, it is about faith and confidence in people who have right view. Sometimes you get faith and confidence in the wrong kinds of people, then it's not going to help you very much. And that's why, specifically, People who have seen that there is an afterlife is mentioned here. It's kind of interesting. Yeah? You have to place your faith with intelligence, with wisdom. It's kind of scary. Sometimes you wonder, have I got enough wisdom? And then you wonder whether you <laughs> have faith in the right people. Yeah? Boy, you've got to have wisdom to be, have right faith. Well, it kind of makes things complicated. But of course, all you can do is do your best. You have, do your very best in uh, be discerning, be wise to the best of your ability. And then as you do that, you tend to approach the spiritual path and spiritual practitioners in the right way. And then you're going to make progress as a consequence. So that is right view. And an outcome, an important outcome of this right view is that you understand that the world outside is impermanent, yeah, that it is problematic, that it is uh, uh, never going, is always going to let you down. Uh, and because there is an afterlife, there is something else that you can develop. You can develop your mind. You can make your mind beautiful and bright and light uh, and bring that into the future with you. Uh, yeah? And this is kind of an important aspect of this. And part and parcel of this, as I mentioned before, uh, is that that bright and beautiful mind is also the kind of mind that you need for awakening itself. Uh, so both for future happiness and for awakening, the path is really essentially the same. So it's a win-win situation. So get into the win-win, don't get into the lose-lose, because then you are going to suffer as a consequence. So this is the idea of right view, and it makes you appreciate why meditation is so important, and that is why it is so useful, and that, that is why it is a support for meditation practice. And the Buddha says that sila and ujjukaditi are the two things you require for meditation to be possible. So now we are going to look more at uh, satipatthana practice in practice, how to do it. And uh, uh, the sutta we're going to have a look at is the Anapanasati Sutta, which is the sutta on the mindfulness of breathing. And one of the interesting things in the suttas is that uh, uh, when the Buddha talks about satipatthana, and he talks about practicing satipatthana all the way, uh, yeah, all its aspect, uh, fulfilling it completely, uh, he says that the way to do that is to practice anapanasati. Mindfulness of breathing uh, is the thing that fulfills the four satipatthanas. Uh, there's one thing you have to do, you don't have to do anything else, uh, and mindfulness of breathing takes you all the way to the end of the path, including all the four satipatthanas. Uh, so if you ever wondered how Satipatthana is to be done, 
And there is good reason to wonder about that because there are so many different teachers and so many different techniques that are being taught around the world. Uh, actually, come back again to what the Buddha said. Uh, and all you really need to do is anapanasati. Uh, sometimes you will find that there are hindrances on the way that you have to deal with. Uh, so you can't not just do mindfulness of breathing. You have to deal with hindrances. Uh, but that is where reflection often comes in. Uh, so use reflection also to guide yourself and to help yourself overcome the problems that stand in your way. Uh, yeah, to help you reduce attachments to the world, uh, to help you overcome anger and all of these kind of things. Uh, but in the end, the only meditation topic that you really need uh, is mindfulness of breathing. Uh, so uh, briefly, before I move on to this particular sutta, which describes mindfulness of breathing in great detail, uh, uh, someone asked yesterday about how to practice satipatthana in daily life. Uh, so I want to touch on that very briefly before I move on to mindfulness of breathing here. Now in my understanding of satipatthana practice, uh, uh, it actually is a fairly profound meditation. Yeah? If you look at Anapanasati Sutta, which we will look at now, it says you sit down. Yeah, and you sit down, that, that is how you're supposed to do this practice. You don't usually do anapanasati while walking or anything else. It is a sitting practice. It is something that requires the body to be still, so that you don't have all the distractions from a moving body and all of that. Yes, that is already uh, tells you something about this being a refined kind of practice. And the same thing when you look at the Satipatthana Sutta, it says that you have to be satima, you have to be mindful to be able to do it. Now the mindfulness that we're talking about here is a fairly high degree of mindfulness, where there isn't much thinking going on in the mind, where you have a degree of clarity, and is not the sort of mind that you normally have in daily life. When you are busy, you're doing all kinds of things, the mind tends to be busy, and it tends to be difficult to maintain that kind of mindfulness. In fact, it is almost impossible, yeah, unless you're an arahant, and if you're an arahant, you don't need to do satipatthana anyway, so that kind of defeats the purpose. So, um, to me, the most important thing to remember about daily practice is to keep a pure mind. That is what really matters. Because if you keep a pure mind in your daily practice, it means that you will have good, you will tend to be, live in a moral way. Not only when you have a pure mind will you have that purity with you, but you also tend to act with purity and speak with purity at the same time. And that really should be your main emphasis in daily life. Yeah, so you need enough mindfulness to be able to uh, kind of um, stand back a little bit uh, and see what you're doing with clarity and then guide yourself in the right way. Uh, that is really what we need. Uh, now, whether you call that satipatthana, I, would, I wouldn't, myself, I wouldn't call that satipatthana practice. Uh, I would call that uh, sense restraint, uh, yeah, like we looked at before, uh, because you are... Uh, not allowing the senses to kind of run ahead of themselves and kind of get you into desires and aversion, all this kind of stuff. I call that sense restraint. Some people call that satipatthana practice. They call it clear comprehension or they call it chitta nupassana, contemplation of the mind, Yeah, because you contemplate in the qualities of the mind. But to me, that is a more profound uh, uh, profound meditation and doesn't really have to do with what we do in ordinary life. Uh, but it doesn't matter so much what we call it, uh, yeah, as long as we agree that that is the main idea and the main purpose of daily practice. Uh, so you have mindfulness, uh, you know what is happening in your mind, and then you have the tools. We'll talk more about those tools later on, uh, 
to deal with those bad thoughts when they arise so you can do something about it and you can uh, have that stability of mind that equanimity inside of you which doesn't uh, so you don't get dragged around by all these thoughts and emotions all the time uh, but you are more stable inside of yourself uh, that is what it should be about now the the reason why it is very common to talk about satipatthana in daily life is because of the certain exercises, certain aspects that we find in the Satipatthana Sutta. For example, the Satipatthana Sutta talks about uh, the clear comprehension uh, you know, that you have during the various activities during the day. It talks about coming and going and speaking and eating and all of that. And you're supposed to have clear comprehension. And that is part of the Satipatthana Sutta. And that is why Satipatthana has become something that people think relates to daily life. But it is very interesting, and I have seen some uh, historical studies uh, on the Satipatthana Sutta, uh, and I think to me it is fairly clear that these uh, exercises or these clear comprehension aspects of the Satipatthana Sutta, actually they don't really belong there. Uh, these are things that we should do prior to Satipatthana. This is how we should live our ordinary life. But what, and so these are preliminary techniques that calm the mind down, make the mind ready, but they're not actually really part of Satipatthana as such. Once you get to Satipatthana, it gets quite already quite profound. And you do it usually sitting down, you watch the breath, or maybe you do the 31 parts of the body, or you do the four element meditation or something like that but it's not really a daily life uh, activity. That is my understanding of this. And I know that many people will disagree with that. Yeah, this is kind of a... <laughs> and it's because a lot of time when you hear about Satipatthana practice, it is precisely said to be during daily life. Uh, and, uh, and basically, sometimes you have different opinions about these things, but that is my understanding of that, that subject. But again, it doesn't matter so much. What matters is that we agree on the fact that uh, the main purpose in daily life is to keep a pure mind. And if you're able to keep a pure mind, it means that once you come on the retreat, whatever you do, once you want to do your meditation practice, then you will have that purity there, and it will help you in your meditation practice. If we can agree on that, then we are basically agreeing on, on the most important point. That is what matters. Okay. Uh, if you want, as usual, to ask any questions about this, these things, and you think that uh, what I'm saying is uh, uh, sheer nonsense, then please ask, yeah? And then we can kind of uh, uh, sort it out in the evening here. Okay, it is the reason why I say it is controversial is because many of the great kind of uh, meditation systems that you find in the world, like uh, the Mahasi technique, for example, uh, emphasizes the idea of Satipatthana during daily life. Yeah, uh, and uh, of course, when I come along and say that I don't agree with that, then of course it can very easily cause problems. But um, the point again, as long as we agree on the rough purpose of what we're doing, it doesn't matter so much what we call it. Often we get called, caught up in labeling, and the labeling can become a problem. But anyway, let us now move on to the next important thing here. And this next one is the Anapanasati Sutta, and this is one of the most important, one of the a clearest exposition on the mindfulness of breathing in the suttas. And uh, it is actually 
an important sutta. Now, one of the things I should perhaps mention here is what is it that makes a particular sutta important? How do we decide whether a sutta is more important than others? How can we do that? And uh, the only way to do that, really, is that you have to use criteria that are internal to the suttas. What did the Buddha himself say was important? Yeah, that is really what matters. And um, very often you will hear, for example, that the Satipatthana Sutta is very important. Yeah, it is. And uh, uh, traditionally, people often have the Satipatthana Sutta in their house, and they will kind of chant it every day, or they might, you know, bow down to it or whatever, and have it in a locked cupboard somewhere or, or something like that. Uh, but is there really any foundation for saying that the Satipatthana Sutta is the most important one? And the answer is, if you look at the word of the Buddha, the Buddha never says that this Sutta is more important than any, anyone else. In general, you can take it that all the Suttas are roughly of equal importance. Yeah? They were all spoken by the Buddha, and you can't really give it a, a hierarchy as such. If you want to give it a hierarchy, you have to look at those Suttas that the Buddha taught the most. And the ones that it taught the most, slight variations on a theme given to different people in different places, uh, they would have been the most important ones. Uh, and from this particular perspective, uh, the Anapanasati Sutta is quite important. Why? Because this particular structure occurs in a number of places in the suttas, uh, and also very important because it is specifically said to fulfill the four Satipatthanas. So if you want to do mindfulness meditation all the way from the beginning, all the way to the end, all you have to do is breath meditation. That is actually sufficient in its own right. So um, uh, as long as it is based on virtue and it is based on right view, yeah, those two criteria obviously are, are important so let's see what uh, it has to say. So this is the middle length sayings number 118, Majjhimanikaya Anapana Sati Sutta. Because, bhikkhunis, lay people, everyone, when mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it is of great fruit and great benefit. When mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it fulfills the four applications of mindfulness. When the four applications of mindfulness are developed and cultivated, they fulfill the seven factors of awakening. When the seven factors of awakening are developed and cultivated, they fulfill knowledge and liberation. So this is a typical of the Buddha when he speaks. The Buddha is always a little bit understated, which is kind of nice. So when he says that when mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it is of great fruit and great benefit, he really means great fruit and great benefit. It is not like you know people using the word awesome and great like they use it today, and it means absolutely zero. <laughs> it, means, it really means great when the Buddha says so. And here... Uh, what it means is that it takes you all the way to the end of the path. Yeah? That's what it means by great fruit and great benefit. Uh, and there it says you fulfill the four, uh, uh, the four applications of mindfulness. Uh, this is all you have to do. You don't need to do anything else. You fulfill it by mindfulness of breathing. Uh, and those applications of mindfulness, in turn, uh, they fulfill the seven factors of awakening. Uh, 
If you look at the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, you will see that an aspect of Satipatthana is actually the contemplation of the awakening factors, uh, yeah, the seven factors of awakening. Uh, and of course, the seven factors of awakening, these are the things that lead to liberation. That's why they are called factors of awakening. Uh, so they lead to knowledge and liberation. Knowledge uh, is the insight that you have attained the highest happiness, that you have made an end of suffering, that there is no more rebirth in the future. That is the kind of knowledge you get when you become an arahant. And liberation is the freedom from those same problems, the freedom from suffering, the freedom from defilements, the freedom from any anything bad. In other words, it is the achievement of the highest happiness. This is knowledge and liberation always go together. When you have the right insight, then liberation follows along as a consequence. So that sets the background. It's a pretty pretty awesome sutta. I, I, <laughs> I said this just before that awesome was being overused, but this really is awesome. Yeah? <clears throat> it is precisely because of this, uh, it is very interesting. So if you want to become enlightened, uh, this is what you have to do. Coming up now. <laughs> And how, because, is a mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated so that it is of great fruit and great benefit? Here, a bhikkhu, gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut, sits down. Having folded his legs crosswise, set his body erect and established mindfulness in front of him, ever mindful, he breathes in. Mindful, he breathes in out. So, there you are. That is the uh, uh, kind of the preliminary passage. Uh, these are the things that you have to do before you even get started with the mindfulness of breathing. Uh, and as so often, this is probably the most important passage in the entire sutta. Uh, the rest that comes afterwards is uh, more or less automatic. It is there as a map, as a guide, so that you know you're heading in the right direction. Uh, but you don't actually need to do very much. Once you have the initial conditions established, uh, then everything else tends to follow as a matter of course. Uh, so these are uh, kind of the, the really important things. So what is, uh, what is the significance of these things? Uh, and the first thing that you will notice here is that uh, you, it's gone to the forest, yeah? the root of a tree, or to an empty hut. Sunyagara is an empty hut, or an empty house. So the point here is that uh, mindfulness of breathing, uh, if it is to be practiced fully and properly, it should be in seclusion. Yeah? This is kind of the point of this. These are all secluded places. And this is why we come here to Anglesey again. This is why forest monks tend to live in the forest. And real forest monks live really deep in the forest, far away from people. Because you need that seclusion really to be able to calm the mind down and to dry it, dry it out from all the sensual aspects of the world, sensual pleasures of the world. There's that twofold thing which is important, why seclusion matters. And when you are in the city, and I notice that all the time myself when I go into Perth or when I go to other cities around the world, they are very sensual places. Yeah, There are places where you have all kinds of entertainment, where you have all kinds of restaurants and coffee shops. There are places where you go out to kind of meet a date or meet a potential partner in life where you go out together and you have all the advertisement, all the things that remind you of all the pleasures in the world. 
uh, all the things that you need to buy that you have to make your life happy yeah they're all kind of plastered all over the kind of buildings and the walls and whatever you see all this stuff and after a while you don't even see it anymore because it becomes so natural to you you see it all the time and you only really understand what it is when you come out into the countryside like here but basically cities are places of sensuality uh, not only cities but towns or whatever it is they are places where you meet to uh, live a life of uh, essential life essentially so you need to withdraw from that and one of the nice things about nature even though you're still living in the sensual realm in the sense that you still see things Nature doesn't have that impact on you as the ordinary sensual pleasures of the world. Nature tends to calm you down. It tends to make you feel peaceful. Yeah, when you go out into the forest here or whatever, it doesn't excite you. You don't you don't kind of feel really excited by seeing green trees. Rather, you feel calmed down. You feel at ease. So it is like a halfway house. You're still living in the sensual world because these are still sights. There are still things that you hear and smell and whatever. But it is a calming down of the sensual world. And it is the first step in the direction of having a mind that is ready for samadhi. And this is what you find throughout the suttas. You find even the arahants, they would praise nature because they realize that nature has this ability on the mind to make it ready for meditation practice. And of course, the arahants, they are the prime example of people who enjoy deep meditation practice. Yeah, They always hang out in the jhanas. They always hang out in deep meditation because they know where to find happiness and know where suffering is to be found. And I'm sure you will experience some of that yourself, how nice it is to be out in a place like this, how calming it is. Uh, and uh, you can then see the point of seclusion. Of course, the seclusion here is not as complete as you have in monastic life because we are still kind of you know, together, uh, but it is like a halfway house. You're moving in that direction. Uh, yeah, this is kind of the purpose of this. So seclusion is a fundamental aspect of being able to withdraw from sensuality, withdraw from all the noise of the world, all the problems, and to allow the mind to calm down. First of all, physical seclusion, kaya viveka, and then the chitta viveka afterwards, the mind also becoming secluded, the mind losing its interest in that world, and then also ultimately becoming secluded from the five hindrances themselves, because that is also an aspect of seclusion. And that is what you find in the first jhana formula. You find vivicheva kamehi, vivicheva akusalehi damehi, which means really means uh, secluded from the five senses uh, and included, secluded from all the unwholesome qualities, which really is the, the five hindrances. Uh. So this is the first thing. Yeah, It says a lot about the Buddhist path, just that much. Uh, and uh, uh, that is why you tend to find the most enlightened people, not always perhaps, but most of the time you find them in the forest, far away. That's where they tend to be, because that is where these things happen. That's where meditation becomes really possible. Much less likely to find them in a city or a town or anything like that. Then uh, you sit down. Yeah, I mentioned before about the importance of sitting down. Meditation is a very subtle thing, and if you are going to be able to watch your breath, you need a posture which is quite subtle. You need a posture where you are at ease, you are relaxed, where there is a minimum of movement going on, and sitting is really the way to do that. 
There are some teachers who teach mindfulness of breathing while walking. Um, I personally, I wouldn't really recommend that. I think it's just too difficult and too uh, not really. In my opinion, there's enough mindfulness, enough uh, with the breath already just by sitting down. And when you walk, you can do other things. We can perhaps talk a bit about walking meditation later on. Uh, but walking meditation you can use to contemplate, you can use to do a bit of metta, you can use uh, f- for other things rather than focusing too narrowly on an object. We need a bit of variety in meditation practice. Uh, if you do the same thing all the time, eventually you go bonkers if you do that. Uh, you need a kind of bit of something else. So you sit down. It's a subtle form of meditation. And then it says, having folded your legs crosswise, uh, so this is considered then uh, the kind of the best meditation posture. Perhaps, uh, perhaps not. Uh, I would say the best meditation posture is the one where you are at ease. That is how you decide the best meditation posture. Uh, the reason why they have uh, folding the legs crosswise here is because that was the standard way of doing things in ancient India. People were used to sitting on the floor. People, it was kind of common for them. In the modern world, people, we don't grow up sitting on the floor. We grow up sitting on chairs. And because of that, our joints are not really suited always to sitting on the floor. It's difficult for us. You get pains and problems. But in those days, people were comfortable sitting on the floor. There is a passage in the suttas that says, in oh, uh, where, and this person says, oh, I, I, I'm not comfortable without sitting cross-legged. Uh, yeah, this was a standard comfortable posture for them. Uh, but for us, most of us, we have to move around and we have to kind of change our posture all the time if we do this too much. Uh, so be comfortable. This is my interpretation of this. Uh, it, I'm taking a bit of liberties with the text there. I'm saying crosswise means comfortable. Uh, yeah, you gotta you gotta interpret a little bit. Yes, yeah? so I'm kind of <laughs> this is my my interpretation of this. So uh, uh, and then of course what happens is the body starts to fade away, and then you have that subtlety again that makes meditation possible. Set your body erect. When your body is straight, you tend to have more clarity. Uh, but again, don't overdo that. Sometimes if you do meditation in daily life, you're not ready to have a straight body because you are tired and you, you need actually to relax a little bit first. So if you start out by leaning back and just uh, taking some deep breaths just to kind of relax, that is perfectly okay to begin with. And then when the mind becomes clear, when mindfulness starts to become established, then you straighten the body. If you straighten the body too quickly, you just become tense and uncomfortable because you're not ready for it. Always use judgment. Be wise about your meditation practice. Remember, it is about being at ease. It is about being relaxed. It is not about following a strict formula, which always is right in every particular situation. Be flexible. And this is why I'm always a little bit skeptical of meditation systems that are too rigid, because if it is too rigid, it doesn't give you enough flexibility to take account of different people, different proclivities, different ways, you know, different degrees of tiredness or whatever. Be a little bit flexible in your approach to these things. Otherwise, you're going to have a lot of suffering if you don't do that. Don't, don't do that. So set your body erect at the right time, which usually means after you are relaxed and at ease and mindfulness is starting to arise. And then it's almost as if you want to have an erect body anyway. You want to sit straight because it feels good to sit straight when the mind is clear. 
And then you have the last one, having established mindfulness in front of you. And uh, this, of course, being critical. Yeah, And this is uh, what I have been saying all along, is that we have to establish mindfulness first. The purpose of meditation is not to give rise to mindfulness. The purpose of meditation is to use the mindfulness that we already have in the right way. So first to give rise to mindfulness, then you apply that mindfulness in your meditation practice. How do we establish that mindfulness? And this is very much the sort of... Uh, uh, the sort of guidance I've been giving before about learning to relax, allowing things to be, be the passenger on the train, allowing things to die down. And if you are ready, mindfulness will come out of that. If you are not ready, because maybe you haven't lived a life which is good enough or whatever, then even if you do that, mindfulness may not become very strong. So then what you have to do is go back to the other aspects of the Noble Eightfold Path, purify those more, and next year, when you come back to Anglesey, uh, is that right? Uh, yeah, maybe. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Yvonne is nodding. Okay, you've been here a few years now. So, and then you will find that actually you have more mindfulness than you had last year. Why? Because you have lived your life well. You have lived it in the right way. Mindfulness becomes established more easily because all the right qualities are there. Yeah. You have lived with kindness and morality. You have established a bit more right view, yeah, a more idea of the of uh, where happiness is to be found, where it's not to be found, and all of that. And then mindfulness comes more easily as a consequence. So this is the critical thing, and this is why I was saying, don't go to the breath too quickly. Yeah. If you do go to the breath too quickly, what is going to happen is that you're going to find yourself getting tense because you have to hold on to it. The, idea, the ideal way of watching the breath is as if you're just sitting back and you're just enjoying and the breath is just there. You don't have to do anything. Just, the breath is there completely automatically without you having to hold on to it at all. That is the ideal way. You don't always achieve the ideal. Sometimes you have to compromise a little bit, but you don't want to use much force in watching the breath. The idea is to really enjoy what you're doing. The breath is supposed to be a beautiful companion in the meditation practice. You feel you have this wonderful Kalyanamitta, this companion who has supported you throughout your life, always been there, always given you life. This is what the breath does. And now you're even using the same breath to walk together into meditation. Yeah, and then when you think of your breath like that, is you have this beautiful attitude towards your breath. It's your friend. It is something positive in your life. And then uh, you have the right attitude. And then you, uh, these things tend to happen as a consequence. So that is uh, uh, the establishing of mindfulness by uh, looking at the breath in the right way uh, and by uh, having that clarity of mind uh, and uh, uh, following rough, some of those instructions that I have been talking about before, these are the things that ultimately give rise to this. Uh, but in the long run, as I mentioned, it is the overall way that you live your life that will decide whether you will have success in meditation or not. Uh, so, uh, there you are. That is the introductory part of the Anapanasati Sutta. And uh, then uh, tomorrow we have the great pleasure of continuing with the Sutta and looking at all the various aspects of mindfulness of breathing here. In the meantime, please continue enjoying yourself. And 
uh, we'll be back again at 7.30 this evening and do some more meditation together here.